Welcome to PR for Humans with me, Mike Sargent, the show for the best communicators in the business. In each episode, I'll be listening to their secrets and stories and using their insights in PR for Humans, the book I'm writing. Do follow me on Twitter at PR for Humans and LinkedIn. Visit my website, sergeantleaders.com. You spell sergeant just like the police and the army do. Today, I'm thrilled. We've got Simon Lancaster. I'm so excited. He is one of the best speechwriters in the world. So it's fantastic that he has found some time for this podcast. Without further delay, here's the interview. Simon Lancaster, here we are in in the Groucho Club, where you're doing um, another one of your speechwriting courses today. And and having attended one of these, I can't recommend them highly enough. It really is one of the best days that anyone could do in terms of training, thinking about communications, and so on. So fantastic. So just tell us about those. What are you What are you going to be teaching your your students today? Oh my God! Well, it, um, we'll be looking at everyone from um, the, the the great new orators of today, like. Oprah Winfrey, her amazing speech a couple of weeks ago, um, through to some of the dark demons like Donald Trump, but seeing exactly what it is that they do that makes them speak like leaders in the first instance, and then looking at how it is that we mere communications advisors can can aid these gods in achieving their aims, really. Uh, So what about Donald Trump? Is he a good good, um, public speaker? Um, yes, I think he's he's uh, one of the best. He's up there with the, like the, the greats of all time, like Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. I, I, I mean, this is the thing that um, you have to kind of. I think when you're judging people's rhetorical skills, um, you need to be able to detach your own opinions from it to a certain extent and be able to judge them impartially. Um, and and the thing is, is that Trump uses many of the same techniques that Obama did. You know, Obama was very exaggerative when he spoke. Yes, we can, you know. Mm. Um, He was very simplistic and reductive as well. He could also create a great narrative. But whereas we all kind of warmed to Obama and the techniques when he did it, when when Trump does it, we we kind of, um, we we, we, we vomit a little. (laughs) Obama's a really interesting one. Um, And if you ask anyone to to name their best speakers, I mean, I, Mm. I I guess Obama comes up more frequently than anyone, along with Clinton, mm. I suppose. But, but Obama could, could, could be a very boring speaker as well as a, as a brilliant speaker. Can, yeah. you, can, you kind of, can you explain what made him brilliant when he was brilliant and what made him boring when he was boring? I think he, w- he was capable to, uh, of deploying the, the right style to match the substance of what it was that he was saying. Um, and so if he did want to be really whipping people up into the great heights, then he could do that very, very easily. But equally, he could be very, very measured. Mm. And he could just slow his voice right down and just create the mood that was appropriate to the people. And, I mean, there was Harold Wilson who said, never underestimate the power of being boring as a political weapon. And the truth is that sometimes in politics, you don't want people to be looking at you. You don't yeah. always want the spotlight <laughs> on you. Yeah. And being boring is a great way to take it away. Yes. Um, and, and what about, the, the, you mentioned the speed of Obama, speaking mm. really slowly and giving mm. huge emphasis to everything. But other, other speakers can be really engaging by ramping up the tempo and, and delivering it with, with high intensity and high velocity. Mm. Is that just a, a sort of personal choice about how, f- how 
quickly you should get your personal sort of style of delivery, speed of delivery? Yeah, I mean, it's true that when you look back at many of the great orators from history, some of the ones that you mentioned before, people like your, your Clintons, you know, um, but also Roosevelt, Churchill, all of that, it's interesting that when you time their speeches, they all clock in at around 90 words a minute. Right. Whereas you okay. and I talking now, we're probably doing more 180 words a minute. Yeah. Um, and probably after I finish this coffee, I'll be up to 250 <laughs> words a minute. But that's natural conversation. You know, it's 300 words a minute if you go to New York in the morning. Um, and that, so that thing about slowing it right down, that is what we now understand to be the language of leadership. But that is changing. You look at TED Talks, the way that people are engaging people with people now. It is, it is a bit different. I think now there's such a premium on attention, you know, that people need to show that they're qu- they need to demonstrate that, look, I'm saying this and getting my points over to you as quickly as I possibly can. Yeah, so when you're writing a speech for a business leader, mm. uh, is it personal? How many words, how many words a minute um, do you, would you typically average? Well, I mean, if, you're, if you are writing for one of the truly great performers, you will be at about 90 words a minute. Right, okay. um, my easiest rule of thumb, uh, just to keep kind of on check, is, is, is 100, you know, and then you're like 10 minutes, 1,000 words, easy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the beginning of a speech. Mm. Um, it's an important uh, bit of the speech, perhaps the most important bit of the yeah. speech. How do you start a speech? You, you need to you need to get them high. You need to give them drugs, basically. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, just thinking of a metaphor that springs to mind as we're sitting here in the Groucho Club. Uh, but th- that is really what you've got to do. You know, um, now with neuroscience, we can see what's going on in people's brains when they're listening to speeches. And the truth is that brain activity levels, a lot of the time, are actually lower than they are when people are asleep so we want to get them high and I'm not talking about giving them you know Time spice lovely Time breakfast, breakfast is arriving Enjoy. breakfast is arriving wonderful <laughs> okay. thank you um, I'm not talking about spice or meow no, no, meow no, 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 no. or anything like that but like you know you, if you want to make people smile then tell them a joke and get the dopamine flowing mm. if you want people to feel sad and connected to you and close to you then tell them a story and you'll get the oxytocin flowing if you you want to make them feel really alert then ask them a question ask them a really challenging question that they did not see coming at the beginning and that'll get the cortisol going so um mike it's all about the drugs (laughs) no that's good and and there's still brain science has has come on a lot in recent years hasn't it and we we know we now understand how the brain works and how it responds to some of these um stimuli and and that helps the speechwriter doesn't it to to Mm. actually design speeches not in a cynical way but but just knowing how to how to move an audience in certain directions using yeah. some, some techniques well that's right and it's it's building on the ancient art of rhetoric i mean this has always been regarded as an art and people like cicero quintilian aristotle they were writing about this 2500 years ago and what's extraordinary is that many of the techniques that they were talking about that back then we can now see through the prism of neuroscience and you can see why it was that the techniques they were advocating all that time ago that why it is that they do work Aristotle wrote about flattery well flattery why does it make people feel good it gets serotonin levels going in their brain serotonin is like Prozac mm. you know and is that is that one of the kind of number one one of the number one one of the most important rules of speaking is that, is that you've got to make the audience feel special if you can in some way yeah you need to recognise what their emotional needs are and then you need to meet those needs and for some people, that 
you know, it will. It'll be about making them feel that they've got a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It'll make them feel they're part of something bigger than themselves. It'll make them feel that they've made the right decisions in life, that they're, you know, they're, they're making the world a better place, not making the world a worse place. And this is what great leaders will do. But not everyone has the same emotional needs. Some people like conflict, Right. You know, and never right. underestimate that. A lot of people like conflict, and this is why there's a market for people like Trump as well. Do you want to take a mouthful of your? I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to kind of leave it there because I. Okay. I, right. I, I would just. Um, I'd be afraid of spitting salmon on your your expensive microphone. <laughs> we'll carry on. <laughs> um, one of the biggest lessons I learned from you on, on your on your course was was the power of metaphor. In speaking, and I know this is a subject that you you are um, extremely interested in. Why are metaphors so important? We use metaphors all the time. We use metaphors once every sixteen words, um, so it's hard to speak for very long without using a metaphor at all. Um, most business communication is to, is just use using shit metaphors to use the metaphor of shit you know you're laying down the foundations you're deploying something or other you're issuing toolkits you're driving change you know it's it's a dog's breakfast it's a pile of vomit you know what you find is that the great leaders will create compelling stories through metaphor whether it's Churchill and his Iron Curtain, on which one side is the enlightened West and on the other is the East that has been plunged into darkness by these wicked Soviets, you know, or you're talking about Trump with his narrative about draining the swamp, you know, you've got a good story to be able to tell, or Blair with some of his crusading, you know, fighting against the forces of conservatism. These are all powerful metaphors, and they speak deep to our subconscious. And if you want to look at speech writing from a kind of Hollywood type of, uh, of perspective, that's how you do it. You do it through metaphor. That's your way in. But the, the best metaphors are, are original. To some, I mean, if you just simply talk about being in, in the fast lane or, you know, it's a game of two halves, all this kind of, yeah. you know, very, very tired, very yeah. worn metaphors... Uh, won't really help you as a as a speechwriter or a speech giver. No, I, th- I mean I think if 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 you're a CEO and you, you're talking about um, how the company is best in class, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I I don't think there's anyone in your company that's not going to want to hit you for saying that. I mean, you're you're infantilizing a group of adults. You're saying you're still at school, and I'm the teacher. I'm the one that's judging you. And it's just offensive. And you see stuff like that going on all over the place. Because obviously everyone wants control, you know. And so you get CEOs will often use metaphors that make them feel good about themselves. They might talk about resetting the business. So they're imagining their company as an iPhone. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you can, you can just tap it and everything. It will do whatever you, you want it to do. But then, of course, to everyone within your, your company, that says, no, you're not people, your, your little bits in, in my machine that I control. Yeah. Um, speech writing, which I've, I've dabbled in um, myself, not, not particularly successfully, perhaps, but I mean, one of the things, that the conclusions I've come to is that the speech is kind of never 
finish. You, you can try and write it to the best of your ability, but then somebody has to stand up and deliver it. And there's that kind of, what is that bit of a gap between the words on the paper and the words that actually come out of someone's mouth? And sometimes they simply won't be able to read what you've written very well or very powerfully, and sometimes it just won't be their words. So how do you, how do you kind of get around that problem in, in, in your writing, actually capture... Um, the way that somebody really talks which is usually more engaging than them yeah. reading stuff out basically to do my, my trick is to do exactly what you're doing now is to get a microphone out and actually record what they're saying word for words you know everyone has a voice which is so unique so distinct unique rhythms unique points of reference um, and it's very very hard to actively listen and properly absorb all of that in just one listen I will record, I'll play it I'll play it, I'll play it again and it amazes me how on second, third listens I can hear things I'm like, I, how did I not spot that before you know and it's then that you can get the real nuance in someone's voice, that means that when you write the speech for them, you give it to them and they're just like that's exactly what I think you've mm. completely got it and that is what you want you want them to feel as if they wrote the speech themselves as soon as they th if they become conscious whilst they're in the middle of delivering the speech this is not what I think you know this is what that mug who's only yeah. 25 years old and comes from that crappy PR agency <laughs> you know that, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. they think yeah. you know then, then it's game over both for speaker and audience and as, a, as the speech writer you have to be you have to know the CEO or the politician or whoever you're writing for, you have to know. You have to know them, I guess. Mm. I mean, I, but I get a lot of, quite a few speechwriters I've heard never even met the CEO they're writing for, or, or certainly two or three levels removed from them in the, in the hierarchy. That yeah. creates a problem, I guess. It can create a problem, but I mean, it, it is so easy to find, um, you know, recordings mm. of people in public life on YouTube or whatever now and, and a quick Google will normally give you all of the material you need to be able to decode their voice and see their points of reference, see what they're into and the, the critical thing as a speechwriter is having this capacity to be able to almost shut yourself down whilst you're, um, whilst you're writing someone else's speech and put someone else there in their place. I'll tell you what, I couldn't give a, a flying monkeys about cricket you know, I really can't. I don't think I've ever watched a game of cricket in my life. I don't think I've ever stayed awake when someone has been speaking to me about cricket. But if I'm writing for someone who's into cricket, I've got to, you know, I've got to use that language. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've got to look into it because otherwise it will not be authentic to them. So you never write as Simon Lancaster writing a speech. You always write as the person you are ultimately writing for. That's, yeah. That's the, uh, yeah. That's the, it's a difficult thing to, to do and I guess most people just simply can't do it. They always just write as themselves. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a cop-out, you know. Yes. I, I can write a speech for myself, you know, on, on communication in a couple of hours. If I'm writing a speech for someone else, the, that whole level of, like, psychological transferal where you put yourself into their shoes means that it will frequently take ten times as long, you know, because you do, you've got to be seeing the world from their eyes and describing what they feel and capturing their tone of voice as well so the easy thing is to write it as yourself but then they will just rip it up they won't deliver it or even worse they will deliver it and they'll look like a mug you right. know and then you've not done them a favor at all you've actually you know you've put them at, at risk which is what you normally see how many conferences you've been to where the ceo almost looks uncomfortable while they're delivering 
the speech. So I've seen that, like they're, them wincing. Yeah. You know, oh my God, why on earth did they put a quote from that <laughs> idiot in there? You know? <laughs> and, and the best, the best speech, the best moments are, are, are often the, the spon- spontaneous moments within speeches. And I always think mm. it's an interesting balance between preparation, which is so important, and capturing voice and all the craft that goes into the to the speech, mm. memorising it, getting ready for it. And actually, the, that moment of delivery, where often it just cu- it comes alive because something unexpected happens. Someone in the audience might say something, or yeah. you know, there might be you know, a, 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 someone knocks over a glass on table yeah. three, or you know, any of those moments that you can react to and be in that moment uh, are powerful, aren't they? Yeah, br- it brings you to life, and you you can't um, you can't substitute the power of the the authentic. Adrenaline. Do you remember there was all that fuss a few years ago, like um, when Glenn Hoddle was England captain? Mm. He was saying that, well, we're not going to practice penalties because there's no point. Yeah. You know, and everyone was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and he, I remember his line was, was like, well, you, you simply can't replicate those circumstances where, you, you know, whether yeah. or not your team goes through is down to you. And that you could be hated for years, like Gareth Southgate was, <laughs> if you miss yeah. that penalty. And I think that that is so true. For all of the practice that you put into a speech, there's no replacing being on the stage and actually looking people in the eye. And you do. You get a shot of adrenaline will go through you, and that's what brings you to life. And so the, th- the ideas that come out there, the things that come out that, that are basically consequences of that adrenaline, that's the gold dust. Mm. That's the stuff that the audience is then... That's you. Yeah. That's not the script. That's not been six months in the making. That's the real you, and I like it. That's what I came here to see. Yeah, you know? yeah. And what about delivering speeches? I mean, the, the, the trend now is for everyone to want, want to do a TED Talk, want to, to be on stage without a podium, without notes, seemingly coming up with this stuff. Is, is that advisable for everyone, or should, 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 should some people stick behind the podium with a script... And, and try to give that statement. I think it's like whatever feels good for you, really. I mean, one of the things that I, 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 I put first with my clients is making sure that they feel good about themselves. You know, if they feel good, then there's, there's a possibility they'll deliver a good speech. Um, and it, if, that, if for them that means being behind a lectern, fine. You know, I think, uh, you know, I'm thinking in particular I, of Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown could, could deliver a good you know, kind of bully pulpit type thing. And it, he, he was at ease behind a lectern. And I've seen him since doing his, you know, kind of like trying to look cool like Cameron and like wandering around. And he just looks so uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. You know, he, he's done a TED Talk. And it, you know, it makes your too, skin crawl. Too, but when he was campaigning, particularly for the... For the um, in the Scottish referendum, yeah. I felt we got the real Gordon Brown in a way that we'd never had when he was Prime Minister or when he yeah, was Yeah, we did. We, we got the Gordon Brown, the authentic Gordon Brown, that, that was, uh, you know, very, very angry, you know, was completely in the fight of his life, you know, the natural psychoses of, of Gordon Brown that you didn't really want to see when he was talking about local government finance or <laughs> you know something dull or, or NHS reform you know it actually I mean I don't think that I don't think the speech that he delivered in the Scottish referendum was too different to the speeches that he delivered throughout the rest of his career but it was like all of a sudden the, the circumstances and the context mm. justified you know his, his kind of imbalanced rhetoric yeah that's very important Simon you've got a course to deliver and you've got a breakfast to eat <laughs> thank you so much for 
for your comments and thoughts uh, on speech writing. Good luck with your you've got more books coming out, more more courses that are going on. Yes, What's going on in the world of Simon Langston. I've got. I'm, I'm writing my own next TEDx talk at the moment, which I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks, and I've got a book coming out in September with Biteback Publishing called "You Are Not Human: How Words Kill." Fabulous. Looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Great to see you. Thanks so much to Simon Lancaster. He's a master of his craft and, as a result, a brilliant communicator. That's it for today. Please do listen in next time to the PR for Humans podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Goodbye.